Our reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 to 4. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast, because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. Will you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for bringing each person here today. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us and keeping your protective hand over your people. God, we praise you for your wondrous peace. God, we pray that as your people and image bearers, that we are given the opportunities to show your radical peace to this world. Lord, please be with Pastor Jeff today as he preaches from your word. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Teresa. How are y'all doing? Good to see you. Well, we're going to continue in our series called The Relentless, Unstoppable Gospel. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts 24. Acts 24. And that's the passage we'll be in today. Uh, Last March, Carrie and I had an opportunity to take our family uh, on a trip to Florida. And we went, one of the days, we went to Disney World in Orlando. How many of you have done that? Right, so some of what I'm going to say here, you're going to resonate with. We signed up for the Hollywood Studios land, which was cool. We began to get uh, brochures and email ads uh, with happy, smiling people who looked as if they were photographed laughing at the funniest joke they've ever heard. And on the brochure, I kid you not, there were 10 people in the park. And of course, we know none of that to be true. Those of us who have been there, we know that parents do not look happy. They do not look like they've just heard the funniest joke they've ever heard. They look desperate, right? They, they just look like they're absolutely motivated to cram in as much fun as their money can buy because it's expensive. And, uh, and I was there. Unfortunately, we were there uh, during a pandemic year, and it was a 30% cap, like 30% capacity, 30%. And this is how it felt to me. I felt like the entire day, people were right here, like people I did not know, just this close. I felt like I spent my whole day going, hey, man, what's going on? Where are you guys from? We're from, we're from Idaho. Yeah, you're just coming in. No, Idaho, not Iowa. Oh, hey, I didn't see you there. You're, you're super close, aren't you? <laughs> like, that's how I felt, 30%. And I thought, man, if it was 50%, This is what would have happened. I would have walked into the park. Carrie will tell you this is the gospel. I would have have walked into the park, seen all of those people, and I would have said, okay, fam, let's huddle. I'm leaving. Uh, Here's daddy's wallet. Sky's the limit. Don't worry, you didn't need that college degree anyway. Just give what you want. I'm just joking. I would never save for my kid's college. It was stressful just having all those people so close to you. I feel like a New York subway. Somebody's armpit is just like right there all the time. It's not my armpit. But I had one enduring impression of Disney, and it wasn't that. It really wasn't. This was my enduring present of Dis- uh, impression of Disney World. The company has masterfully created a false reality. This is their business. This is their stock and trade. This is their product to help people escape from their lives. And while you're there, you see facades all day long. You see buildings that are not really, they don't really do what 
they're disguised to do. You see doors that lead nowhere. Did you know, you can Google this, look this up on YouTube, they have a paint color. They have developed a paint color. They've scientifically proven that the paint cover will co- color will cause you to avert your eyes. Like you don't want to look at it. It's like poop brown or something like that. And they paint everything they don't want you to look at, they paint, paint it that color. They also have what's called architecturally a forced perspective. You know what that is? You walk up and you think you're looking at this gigantic castle that's far away. Actually, no, it's right here and it's small. It's just they created it to make it look, to trick your eyes. It's an optical illusion. Everything in that park is a facade. Everything in that park is designed to make you believe you're somewhere that you're not in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) And of course, you're just in Kissimmee, Florida. And in your mind, you know, you know you're not sitting at a Parisian cafe, you, you know you're not in Africa on a real safari, but you don't care because you just want to escape from the pressures of life. And who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't want to get away for a day or a week? Some of you do it for a week. It's, who wouldn't want to do that? Now, Paul is experiencing something kind of similar here. He's experiencing a false reality. He has been falsely accused. He's been falsely arrested and imprisoned And now the Sanhedrin has taken up the case. They have a prosecutor. They have brought him down to Felix. And you would think the Sanhedrin, this is a place that is supposed to represent God's justice to the Roman world. This is what it looks like when you do it right. But the whole thing is a sham. It's a facade of justice. They have a legal system. They have defense lawyers. They have prosecutors. They have judges. They require evidence and they require witnesses who saw the stuff go down. But it is, in fact, a facade of true justice. Despite this veneer, Paul is going to experience God's will. So on learning that Paul was a native Cilician, Governor Felix held him in custody and heard the case against him. Verse 1 says, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some of the elders and a lawyer who is representing the Sanhedrin. His name is Tertullus. And these men presented their case against Paul to the governor. And and when Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him in front of Felix. And he said, actually, he's talking to Felix here. He says, we enjoy great peace because of you. And reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight, O Felix. We acknowledge this in every way and, and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further. I request Crest, that you would just be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. For we have found this man to be a plague. An agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world. And a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to desecrate the temple. And so we apprehend him. Uh, By examining him yourself, you will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also join in the attack, alleging that these things were true. And of course, they're not true. This is a sham. This is a kangaroo court. And you get the sense from the story that it doesn't matter what's really true. It only matters what their intended outcomes are. And their intended outcome is is to stop the gospel, to stop this man from causing so much havoc. And preaching the good news of Jesus. And so in the face of injustice, sham trials, fabricated legal charges, wrongful convictions, the gospel remains unchanged. It's relentless and it goes forward. 
And so today's text is going to help us to understand the controversy surrounding Paul. Turns out, it's not because he violated their laws. It's because he's disturbing the fragile, false peace that they have with Rome. But before we see how he's upsetting the apple cart, let me say something about peace. Number one, I want to say this. We are to strive to live at peace as far as it is up to us. As Christians, we are to strive to live at peace as far as it is up to us. How do you define peace? How would you normally define that if someone asked you, just randomly? Most people in our culture would define peace as the absence of enmity, the absence of relational discord, controversy. But the Hebrew term shalom, which is the word, the Hebrew word for peace, means so much more. Shalom means the peace that a person or society experiences when they are properly aligned under the orderly rule of God, which involves a restoration of our relationship. You see, God is sovereign on his throne, and he has never abdicated that throne. Amen? Okay, you and I are out of alignment with his rule. As sinners and rebels in his realm, we, have, we find ourselves out of alignment, and so peace means we come back into alignment with his orderly, sovereign care over our lives. Right now, we're out. When we become reconciled in Christ, we come back into alignment with him. So peace, shalom, is not just a ceasefire. It's not just the absence of discord or the absence of a relational accord. It's not just that. It is actually relational harmony. You and I enter a relationship with God where he has made peace with us through the blood of his son. Jesus said this in John 16, 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You see, you can only have it in Christ. Every other kind of peace won't give you the peace that Jesus can give you. And you will have suffering in the world. But be courageous because I have overcome the world. Does that sound optimistic to you? What is false optimism? False optimism is a denial of reality. There are lots of people in lots of churches today, they just deny reality. They're like, no, 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 don't speak that. Listen, that's false. That's That's just false optimism. True optimism is recognizing what is true. Faith brings an intervention into reality. True optimism says, I have the peace of Christ. I have peace with God because I have been reconciled in Jesus. And in the world, I will have suffering. Oh, you will. And the world, the world will hit you with everything it has, but take courage because Jesus Christ has overcome sin, death, and hell. He's overcome the world. And we are commanded to embody an ethic of peace when it comes to others. What's an ethic of peace? We just live it out in relationships with other people. This is what Paul says in Romans 12, 18. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Look at that statement. It presupposes two things, that it is possible to live at peace with people so long as they're willing to live at peace with you. It also presupposes that sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it is impossible. You're not responsible for everything. You're not responsible for everything that they feel or everything that they do or every choice that they make. Sometimes it's not possible. But as far as it is up to us, let's try. Live at peace. And we can obey this command for three reasons. The first one is because we have it. We we already have it. 
I mean, we are the one people group on earth who actually have received peace and reconciliation with God. Reconciliation just means to make peace between two warring parties. You and I have been reconciled to our God. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified, which means you have been declared in the right, the verdict on your life is you're justified in God's law court by faith, not by works. You can't bribe God. You can't coerce God. You can't twist his arm behind his back. You can't present to him a whole life of good works and make yourself righteous before God. It's by faith in the shed blood of Jesus. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you and I, are the, this is the one place on earth, the one place where you can find people who have true, profound, deep peace. Shalom. And we can obey it because we have it and we model it. We have it and we're to model it. The peace with God that, offers, that he offers to the world, church, we're to be a living illustration of it. The world should be able to look at us and say, hey man, what is going on there? And we model it personally. Colossians 3.15, here's what it says. It says, and let the peace of Christ to which you were called in one unified body, let it rule in your hearts. Let me ask you a question. What is ruling your heart today? What's ruling in your heart today? What reigns in you today? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it disappointment? Is it heartache? What reigns in you today? Because what he says here, what Paul says to the Colossians is, let the shalom, this relational harmony that comes from being realigned under God's sovereign care and his rule, let that reign in you. Let that rule your thoughts. Let that rule your heart. We're to model it personally for others. And we're to model it corporately. Romans 14, 19, he says this, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. So the church is to model it personally in our personal relationship with Jesus. And we're to model it corporately. We're to pursue everything that edifies and builds up the church and promotes peace within the church. And we're not to pursue anything that doesn't do that. So if it edifies, if it builds people up in Christ, if it builds up the church and builds up the body of Christ, do that. If it doesn't, don't do that. Don't pursue that. We have it, we model it, and we offer it. God hasn't just reconciled me. He, he hasn't just reconciled us. We're not just a picture of reconciled relationships with God, no, we offer it to the world. We offer it to the world. We extend the invitation for them to come and experience the same reconciliation with God that we have. Second Corinthians 5.18, he says this, everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the, te- the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. So not only did he make peace with us, but then he gave us the ministry, go out there and offer that to everyone. Offer that to everyone, and here's the key. You want to see a church that's imploding? This happens to churches all across America, folks. It happens for a variety of reasons, but one reason I can tell you for sure. Churches implode when you have a group of people who have received the peace of God, relational harmony with God through Christ Jesus and his blood. Like they've received it, and then they stop offering it, so then they stop modeling it. The key to modeling it is to continue to offer it. When you and I take our eyes off the mission, when we take our eye off the ball, we become ingrown. 
We turn on each other. We think the mission is to be right about everything. We think the mission is to be right about the color of the paint on the wall, right? Which is going to change soon. I'm just forewarning you right now. So uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, all right? When you see that happen, when you see these things, you know the time is near. So everywhere you see a Christian or a church that has peace but stops extending that invitation to someone else, they stop modeling it. They stop modeling it. And infighting and backbiting and bickering take over the church. But there's another sense in which we shouldn't have peace. So we should have peace. We should model it. And there's another sense, though, in which God doesn't want us to have peace with the world. And I want to show you that. Number two, the gospel is disruptive to counterfeit peace. The gospel is countercultural. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural, but it's disruptive. It's it's an extremely disruptive force when you have this sort of uh, fragile, superficial, false peace. What's the complaint against Paul in this text? I want to zoom in. I want to show you very carefully what it is. Look in verse 2. It says, when Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said to Felix. Now, this is what he's saying to Governor Felix. We enjoy great peace, great shalom. No, you don't. With who? Rome, your benevolent overlords? Because of you and your reforms. In other words, your compromises and your concessions to Rome. (laughs) That's why we have this fragile, flimsy peace are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your incredible foresight, your political gamesmanship. And so we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent. Felix, with utmost gratitude. What is going on here? Right now, Felix has helped them to achieve a relative ceasefire. Remember, peace doesn't mean ceasefire doesn't just mean that. And he has helped them to achieve a relative cease fire, but you and I are good historians, aren't we? And we know the rest of the story. We know better. We know that in just a few short years, in about a decade, the whole thing is going to crumble and fall apart because there is this simmering, boiling spirit of revolution that is about to take over Jerusalem and set it on fire fire. And Felix has offered a counterfeit peace. But what the gospel does is the gospel comes into that culture and offers real, real shalom. It really does. And so the Sadducees and the Herods, they were famous for compromising with Rome. So long as Rome committed to feathering their nests, to making their lives good, to keeping them prosperous and happy, they played ball. And now look what they accuse Paul of. Verse 5, for you have found this man to be a plague. He's a plague. He's a pandemic. He's an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world. And he's the ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. Of course they viewed Paul this way. Now principally, none of this is really wrong. The gospel is contagious. The gospel should be infectious. The good news of salvation and forgiveness in Jesus Christ can, can really take a hold, and it has across Asia, and it has turned the world upside down. So he's not wrong about that. And Paul is an agitator. Listen, the gospel, the gospel saves, but the gospel also disrupts. The gospel will save you, but it will also, also turn your life upside down. It will upend your very life and your allegiances. 
So yeah, that's true, Paul. And Paul's the leader. He's been leading this effort. Look at how John saw the people in the last days. This is the book of Revelation. He's talking about two witnesses. It's in Revelation chapter 11. You can write that down. You can look that up later. And in this chapter, I believe he's talking about two representative people here, one being an ethnic Jew, one being an ethnic Gentile. He represents the ethnic Jew with the olive branch and the ethnic Gentile with the lampstand. And so these are the two end days witnesses. And they represent these two groups of people. And what they're doing is they're out in the culture, out in the world, preaching vigorously the good news of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the world is so infuriated with them, they kill them, leave their bodies in the street. And they're happy about this. Look at what it says. It says in verse 10, those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another. It's Christmas. Because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. Really? Tormented? How? With the truth. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, testifying, witnessing for Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to the truth. And there are people whose hearts have become so darkened and so hardened that when they hear the truth, ah, it, it torments them. It makes them crazy. Listen, we live in a culture today. How many of you know we live in a culture today where increasingly to disagree with anybody's opinion is to do harm to them? Have you heard this? Surely you have. This is rampant in our university systems. I mean, so much for free speech, right? Let me read you the First Amendment. Here are the words. Listen to these words. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So we don't want to establish a denomination and force you all to believe the way we do. No, we want it to be a free market of ideas, right? So Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people to peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Wow. Remember when that was a thing? Like, remember when it was perfectly acceptable to freely say, to speak your mind, to say something in the marketplace of ideas and, and, to, and to invite an exchange of ideas? Remember when that was a thing? <laughs> How long ago that seems. Listen, public open dissent is not only guaranteed in our founding documents. Those founding documents are based on the truth of God's word. And listen, it's not just guaranteed by the Constitution. It's good for you. It's good for you to hear things you don't, you don't agree with. And, and the role of Paul and the role of the church and the role of Christ's community church is to go out into the world and disrupt it. Man, to just kind of agitate things, to say, hey, man, did you know that you're a sinner far from God and you need a Savior, Jesus? Did you know that? Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 33. He said, but whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. So look at what Jesus just said there. There are lots of churches over the next few decades, while we're in this period of intense darkness, before God sends us another great awakening. We are the generation in the interim that's going to pray that in, that's going to storm heaven and ask God, God, do it again. Come, visit us again. Let there be another outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the United States of America. Don't you want that? I hope you do. I hope your heart is for that. 
But right now, in this interim, in this period of darkness, historically, we're the generation that's going to safeguard. We're going to dig in. We're going to safeguard the truth. And we're going to pray for that generation. And some of the folks in our generation, they might be lost. And some of the churches are going to be tempted between now and then, if God ever does that in his sovereign will, between now and then, they're going to be tempted to just let the miasma, just the false teaching of our culture just waft into their churches, and it'll kill their churches. It certainly will stop the gospel cold. And Jesus said, those churches, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father in heaven. This is how serious this is. And don't assume that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't. Not the kind of peace you're thinking about. Not the kind of shallow, convenient, flimsy peace that you, that you want. I didn't come to bring that peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, this is a metaphor. Here's the sword. Verse 15, 35. He says, for I came to turn a man against his father. Heavens, no. A daughter against her mother. God forbid. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, that's already happening. We don't need Jesus for that. I mean, we don't need the gospel for that. I went over this last night with my wife, and she said, please don't make that joke. I was like, no, no, it's good. Everybody understands. You're like, we get it, right? (laughs) People who embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, who form their lives after his truth and after his gospel, listen, they're going to feel like a plague The truth can be a tormenting thing to have to listen to if you're really committed to darkness. The gospel saves, but the gospel gospel also disrupts. It disrupts false, counterfeit peace. Peace and compromise at the expense of the truth is no real peace at all. Number three, when the truth is spoken, people usually react, people who do not want to receive it. They're just, man, they're just dug in. They're not going to receive it. They will react with anger or fear. That's exactly what happens here. So the governor, Felix, motions to Paul to come up and defend himself. He does. And what Paul does is he comes up and says, I am innocent of these charges. What are they accusing him of? Being a revolutionary. That's what they accused him of. They're accusing him of fomenting revolution and bringing chaos into the temple and defiling the temple. This is what they're accusing him of. He has to get up and say, no, I didn't do anything that you're accusing me of. Nothing. I am not guilty of any of this. And so he vigorously defends himself before this angry Sanhedrin group who wants to shut him down and cancel him. Verse 14, he says, but I'll tell you this. I'll tell you what I am guilty of. I'll admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, the Christian way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. In other words, I worship the same God you do, and I believe in the same Bible you do. It's just that I believe that that God has defined himself, has come here and revealed himself definitively in the life and death and ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I believe that all of those scriptures, Old and New Testament, the law, the prophets, the poets, I believe that they all find their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. He says, we believe in the same God, we believe in the same word, but Jesus is it, y'all. That's what he's trying to tell them. And he says, and I have a hope in God. I believe in God. I hope in the same God 
which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and unrighteous. He's saying, listen, you and I both believe in the, in the resurrection. We both affirm that. It's just that I believe it's already started. You believe it's at the end of the world when God will raise the nation. And I'm telling you, he already has. He's risen his son from the dead. And all who are in Christ will be risen from the dead. We have a difference of interpretation. But we believe essentially the same Jewish faith. And it says several days later when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ Jesus. When I first read this, I thought, all right, we're going to get a conversion here. This is going to be a great conversion story. Not so much. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, Paul spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Why is he talking about those three things? Because this is righteousness in the Christian faith. You cannot be righteous by making yourself righteous. You and I are righteous by faith. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is the one who gives us right standing before God. And by faith in him, that's how a person is made right with God. But after a person is saved by grace, through faith, made right with God, he enters a life of self-control. The same grace that saves you enables you to live out the gospel, to live according to God's word. And so he talks to him about righteousness and about self-control and final judgment. He says, the truth is this, Felix, all of us are going to stand before God and give an account for our lives, the lives we've lived in the body. We will give an account for it. And right there, Felix has to shut it down. (laughs) He has to say, nope, I don't want to hear anymore because fear is overtaking his heart. Why? Because he's afraid of being judged. And also, he's afraid that if he believes and embraces this gospel, as so many others have done, it will turn his life upside down. And he's not wrong about that. Oh, he's not wrong. The gospel will. It'll change your life. And notice the two responses. You have the response of the one group, the Sanhedrin, represented by Tertullus, the prosecutor, who is angry. They're they're infuriated. They're foaming at the mouth with rage at Paul. They want to shut this thing down, but they're actually also afraid. That anger is, is a result of their fear because they don't want to lose their position either. They don't want Jesus to be Savior and Lord And you have Felix, who is just right now struck with terror in his bones. But the real issue here is speaking the truth they don't want to hear. And when people hear the truth of the gospel or of the word, sometimes what happens is they say, yeah, let me think about that. Has anyone ever said that to you? I've had people say that to me. Yeah, I'm undecided. Uh, I'll think about what you said. That's honest. That's an honest broker. But many people, they respond in anger or they respond in fear to the truth. But as the church, we have to keep saying what is true. Here's the truth. Let me tell you. There is one true God of the universe. There isn't any more. There is one true God of the universe, a sovereign, loving, creator God who has by design and by decree determined the purpose and function for everything he has made. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is one eternal God who is sovereign and loving, who cares about your life? And as the sovereign God of creation, he has determined by design and by decree the function, the purpose of everything that he has made. And that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the sovereign king and creator God made us in his image. Of all the things that he created, he created these creatures, these human beings. 
these little bodily clay creatures in the garden, and he bestowed his image upon us. And what does it mean to be an image bearer? According to Genesis, it's really essentially two things. We are made male and female. Your maleness and your femaleness is not a social construct. That is nonsense. Your maleness and your femaleness, listen, is part of your nature. It's hardwired into your very nature because God made them in his image, male and female. He created them. And God gave them a dominion vocation. God said, now go out there into the world, extend the project of Eden into the rest of the world. Go out there as my representatives in my dignity and in my regalness. Go out there and represent me, my rule, my reign to the rest of the world. Be fruitful be, and multiply. Fill the earth with our kind. Interesting, isn't it? Go out there and fill the earth with other people who bear my image. And so what do you think Satan wants to do to attack the image of God? He will attack those things. He will destroy them. He will tear them up. He will get people to believe that they're not really a male or a female. He will get people to believe that they're not really designed for marriage relationships, which is nonsense. Listen, if you're single, God bless you. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. The Lord may have someone for you, but generally speaking, God has made people to procreate. He's the creator. We're the procreators. That's how he made us. And so we believe that because the human being bears God's image from conception to the grave, they have God's image. They are, they are worthy of di- dignity and respect. I hope you believe that. And those image bearers unfortunately fell into sin. So God created co-rulers, co-regents. People who were supposed to go out into the world and represent his reign, represent his sovereign, loving, benevolent care to the rest of the world. He was supposed to have a co-ruler, but what does he get? A rebel. He gets a rebel in the realm. And the fact is that you and I have fallen into sin. In Adam, we have all fallen into sin. And now we're estranged from the family of God. We're estranged from our God. We have disharmony. We have unpeace with God. Right? And here's the good news, that while we were estranged, seeking every imaginable kind of counterfeit shalom, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were enemies of God, he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us, to make a way so that we could be reconciled, come back into the sovereign rule of our God to come back into a peaceful, harmonized relationship with him. While we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's astonishing. That's an astonishing message. Now, go tweet all that and see how fast you get canceled, right? The gospel saves, but the gospel also disrupts. The gospel is mercy, it's grace, but it also is a very agitating message. Listen, ideologies come and go. Rulers, people in charge, don't get bent out of shape. They come and they go. But the gospel remains. Amen. Amen. All right, I'm glad to hear that. Let me give you some application this morning. Number one, do you have peace with God today? Do you? In your heart, let me ask you, what is reigning in your heart right now? 
Is it fear? Fear that you might die and you face an uncertain eternity without Christ? Is it anger? Is it resentment and bitterness? What is reigning in your heart right now? Because God wants the reign of his peace to reign in your heart. And how can we express the peace of God to others? Our brothers and sisters, how can we as a church exemplify that so that when the world sees Christ Community Church, they say, what in the world is going on in that place? All these people, diverse backgrounds, of diverse opinions, and yet they are unified around this one thing, this word, this sure word. And extend that to others. Extend that peace to others. Number two, don't fear the truth. Don't fear the truth. Listen, it's okay for us to hear things we don't agree with. God designed us to be able to engage in public dissent in the marketplace of ideas. And the gospel was designed to go into that marketplace and to present the truth of salvation in Christ. Don't fear the truth. Don't be angry at the truth teller. Number three, take the lead no matter what the cost. Paul was called a ringleader. I I like that. And so are we. We're the ringleaders. As the church, we cannot wait for the world to take the lead in speaking the truth. As the church, we can't wait for them to start discovery Bible studies and invite their unsaved friends. As the church, we can't wait for them to take the initiative to tell us what the truth is. We have to do it. We have to do it. Are you committed to that? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for, just thankful for this word. We're thankful for the life that it imparts us every time we hear it read or taught. And if you're here this morning and you do not have peace with God, you have not made peace with God in Christ Jesus, it's very simple. You confess what is true. God made you in his image, but you have fallen into sin. And the truth is, is that you're a sinner. And apart from Christ's saving work, you will spend eternity in hell. You will spend eternity away from God. You just confess that. And you confess that God has made a way. God has taken the initiative. He took the first step toward you to send his only son to die for you on a cross to pay the penalty that was due you and to resurrect from the dead victorious over sin, death, and hell. Will you embrace that right now? Will you just say, yes, I believe it and I am right with God. I want to have peace in my heart with God. This is the way. This is the way. You become a disciple. You become a follower of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and frankly you haven't really felt like extending the peace or modeling the peace of God to others, would you just commit to doing that? Listen, God reconciled you when you were an enemy of God, when you were an enemy of the cross. Can you see others as potential allies? Can you begin to see the people who aren't saved yet, who haven't come to Jesus, can you begin to see them no matter what their disagreements are with you as a person whom God wants to save? Will you commit in your heart to extending the peace of the Lord to them? And Father, we commit all of these things to you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit this congregation to you. Thank you for giving us such a compelling vision to live for. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.